As parents, we all want our kids to succeed, and we want them to grow up to be independent and self-confident. But sometimes what we say we want is at odds with some of our parenting choices. It's not like we're trying to make them dependent or that we're trying to hold them back. God forbid they should still be living at home in their 20s with us still doing their laundry and paying their phone bills. Nobody wants that. So we know what the ultimate goal is. We just don't always know how to accomplish it. And that's not all. Sometimes it feels like our DNA is working against us. That as parents, we're just compelled to help them. Or maybe it's the long-established positive feedback loop. They're frustrated. We help them. They smile. We help them some more. It's a wonderful feeling to be needed by our children, even when they're not children anymore. Oh, don't get me wrong. Help is a good thing. It's loving and it's well-intentioned. But sometimes it's not really all that helpful. But the patterns families can get into may be so ingrained, it can be hard to stop and shift gears. Even though we are adults and we are fully aware that what we're doing isn't really helping our child grow towards independence, we may do it anyway. Some parents take their helping to extremes, like this mom who emailed me a few weeks ago about her 10-year-old daughter. Here's what she wrote. She won't unbutton her pants to put them on or take them off because she can't do the buttons. She'll only wear slip-on sneakers because she can't tie shoes well. And she has no interest in trying to learn these things. I'm thinking, 10 years old and she can't unbutton her pants. Does she need to call mom every time she has to pee? Then mom goes on. She can be quite bossy and wants to be right about everything, so many of the other kids are turned off by her. She doesn't like any of the kids in the neighborhood, and they don't like her. You say the princess is a tad bossy. Why am I not surprised? And finally, this bit. My husband and I still go into her school to help out and have lunch with her. We each have a day each week when we go in, so she has a parent around twice a week at school. I feel that this is probably not great for her, but I don't know how to stop. Okay, cautionary tale. So that's one surefire way to undermine your goal of helping your child develop confidence. Now let's talk about how to actually get the job done. This is Annie Fox, and this is Family Confidential, Secrets of Successful Parenting. Today's show, The Gift of Confidence. My guest today is Joe Brzezzi, founder of Thinking Forward. During the past 20 years, Joe has successfully guided children, parents, and educators through the challenges of the school years. His background as an educator, coach, and parent form the ideal trio of experiences for connecting kids with the adults who live and work with them. In addition to speaking at conferences and at parent education events and the teacher training seminars he facilitates at Thinking Forward, Joe also teaches at the Graduate School of Education at UC Santa Barbara, where he instructs future teachers on the development of relationships among children, parents, and schools. Today, Joe and I are going to talk about his new book, a Parent's Guide to the Middle School Years, which covers many key topics, including the three C's to thriving during middle school, confidence, connection, and challenge. Welcome, Joe. How are you doing? Wonderful. So how are you? 
I'm doing great, and I'm so excited to be doing this with you, um, help you promote your book, of course. You're my first interview on this new series, so... Well, thank you for having me, and yeah, I do, I feel honored. By the way, I liked your book a lot, and um, I, I see that I even endorsed it on the back, which is very cool. <laughs> yes, I appreciated that. That was quite a nice endorsement as well. I mean, you really you put some beef into that. I, I really liked it. Well, I'm glad you did, and I, I like the book a lot because when I go and give parent ed talks, I am often asked for practical nuts and bolts advice, how to get the kids to become more confident, more self-reliant, and you've got it right between the covers of this book. It's it's so pragmatic that I think that it's, it's going to be very appealing, so I, I wish you lots of luck with this book. I think as soon as parents know it's there and get it in their hands, they'll be very grateful to you. Well, thank you. That was kind of the intent behind it. I wanted it to be something that you could pick up, you could read, and really put into action. You know the number of books out there that are really based on theory and the research, which is all wonderful. But I think at some point it comes down to a parent picking up a book like this and saying, what can I really use? And I wanted the book to be just that. I wanted it to be something that you could really put into practice right now and not feel like you had to read the entire book to get something out of it. It's great. And I do like the way you've organized it. Okay, so well, you and I spend a lot of our time working with middle school students, and we're very well versed in their issues. You don't need me to tell you that it's a wild ride for the kids and for their parents. It's, it's such a transitional period. They're, you know, their bodies are changing, got this incredibly rapid brain development. Their behavior is changing. Their, their sense of self is changing. Their, their family dynamics, their social circles. It's like you name anything, and yep, that's also changing. And it's challenging for them, I think, to keep up with all these changes and maybe even more challenging for their parents who I believe in all of our loving devotion to our children kind of try to resist the inevitable that they are, in fact, growing up. And I know that this compassion that you're showing and incredible awareness of what is taking place here doesn't spring from nowhere. So I've got to ask you, Joe. What were your own middle school years like as a student? Wow, that was quite an introduction. I, it was like, I'm not sure that I need to say anything else. <laughs> but as you said, I, I think we both spent significant time with these groups of kids, but also drawing on our own experiences having been in middle school. And as I think back, I was actually at a school that was kindergarten through eighth grade. So although there wasn't a clearly defined break between elementary and middle school, there was certainly um, a change in mindset. And I, I say that because as we moved into sixth grade, which I considered to be middle school at that particular school that I was at, there was a definite shift in the academic focus. We were moving in between classes. Uh, we were suddenly going to camp, and that was different. And the whole attitude about the teachers seemed to be different. There was very much a focus on, we need to get you ready now for high school. And there was also the focus on, here are some things that are happening within uh, relationships and friendships. There seemed to be more of a focus on connecting with parents about some of the things that were happening. So it was a really uh, a very visible shift for me as a student. And some of the things, of course, were 
were transparent. Of course, the, the focus on the parents, I had no idea. But in speaking with my parents, you know, in writing this book, we talked a little bit about that experience. And that's when some of that, uh, the focus on the parents started to come out for me. So in my own personal experience, it was very much as you described, so many different changes happening all at the same time. And I kind of grown accustomed to change, but not at a level that I was experiencing then. And so many days, I think it's just, you wake up feeling overwhelmed, not really quite sure what's happening to your body, not really quite sure how to respond emotionally to some of the relationships and friendships that were developing at school. And then starting to feel this increasing pressure for academic achievement that really wasn't there in the past. So I think as you really started to share in that introduction, it really hit me that there are so many different changes that trying to find some some balance with what I was doing as a child. And of course, this is all you know, metacognition now years later. I had no uh, awareness of any of this. But kind of thinking back on it, all of the change that was happening there and just really feeling overwhelmed at times. Overwhelmed, yeah. I, I can definitely tap into that as I remember specifically seventh grade was a time that it it hit me that things were moving almost at a cinematic rate, that the frame rate had moved into another gear. And it was mostly the social stuff for me. And academics were never really a problem for me, but I those changing friendships and who liked who and and what did that look that person just gave you actually mean and and yes, the expectations from the teachers, and now this was starting to actually mean something. Your grades really counted. And that's, um, that's terrifying, I think, because the stakes were raised. Don't you agree? I would agree. I would agree. And I think, as you mentioned, too, it was the first time that all of a sudden that girl who was sitting next to me who had been there for the past year, and I hadn't noticed, all of a sudden I was noticing. It was like, who's that? When did she show up? And and whether she looked at you a certain way, that mattered. And that could throw you off for the entire day. That's right. Or or, or send you into seventh heaven. <laughs> so what inspired you to write this book? You know, as a teacher, during the middle school years, I used to see kids come in that uh, their personality was uh, kind of moving in one direction, whether that was positive or negative. But they had come in with an experience from elementary school, whatever that experience had been, as I said, but then leave middle school significantly different. And it was for all of the factors that you just described. I think it was the physical and emotional changes. It was the, uh, the change in academic focus. But it seemed as though there was a lot that was happening during those years that was really dramatically affecting kids. So that... When they entered high school, it was almost as if a lot of who they had become was already set. And then as I started to look as a writer, you know, stepping out of the classroom at what was really out there on the bookshelves for parents, there was a lot of focus, of course, on the teenage years. But as I started to narrow the niche down and really look at middle school, I was not finding a lot of information out there uh, in addition to just the research and the theory type of things about adolescence. And, but yet, adolescence seems a much broader, much broader scope in terms of age. But as I really looked at the middle school years, there didn't seem to be a lot out there. And yet, 
there seems to be so much that's happening during those years. I thought there really needs to be something else here for parents and something, as we talked about earlier, something very practical. What did you teach when you were a teacher? Uh, you know, the first classroom that I taught was actually self-contained. So I was teaching the whole host of subjects from social studies to math to language arts and then became more focused on language arts. I'm guessing that you realized in that self-contained class the, the importance of guidance and coaching, which is, I'm sure, a lot easier for a teacher to do than a parent to do when the kid is, you know, floundering or just putting their toe in the water of this new realm of middle school and how much influence a steady hand and that, that steady stream of confidence-building talk can do for a kid. I'm wondering if you might recall a particular child from that first year of your self-contained classroom who um, really blossomed in your classroom. I do. I have one that comes to mind, Charlie. There seems to be certain kids that just kind of leave an imprint on your brain as a teacher. And I think Charlie was one of those kids. He had come into the classroom very low in terms of self-esteem. Whatever his experience had been throughout uh, the kindergarten through fifth grade years, he just didn't seem to have caught a break. And if there was ever a problem out on the playground, it was Charlie's fault. And just never seemed to get the benefit of the doubt. And so, and I had heard that about him coming in. I liked to get some information about kids coming in, uh, whereas a lot of my colleagues didn't, didn't really want that. I felt like it was a benefit for me to kind of know where kids had come from and then try to remain as, as objective as possible and not let that really influence me either way, but just kind of as background knowledge. So what I had come to find out about Charlie was that he had really had a difficult time coming in. So I thought, what am I going to be able to do within this environment, knowing that he's going to be here an entire day, every day for 180 days, that could help to change that self-perception? Because he had really come to believe that he wasn't a very good person, and nobody really liked him, he didn't have any friends. And so I think for me, it was initially, it was really kind of being an advocate for Charlie in the classroom and saying, hey, here's a great guy, and putting him in positions in the classroom where I knew he was going to be successful. So whether that was within a certain peer group of kids, making sure that his desk was in an area that I knew he was going to be surrounded by people who might be willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And then when it came time to, to get up in front of the group, really looking for situations where he could step up, say something that was short, but yet I knew he would be successful with, and then gradually building on that. So building his confidence from small situations until really by the end of the year, he felt comfortable up in front of a group of kids, whether it was sharing an oral report or just talking about what was coming up over the course of the weekend, had a nice uh, peer group. It was still small, but he had a group of friends that when he went out to the playground, he knew that he could hang out with. He was no longer on his own. So... I think for Charlie that year, it was, it was a big turning point, and I felt like by the end of the year, we'd really done some things together that I knew were going to impact his future. I'm sitting here listening, and I'm just smiling. I am thinking, wow, that you probably turned his life around. I mean, it, it, it had to do with that self-perception you were talking about. This kid was defeated when he came to you. He wasn't trying anymore, and... And because you believed in him and you gave him opportunities on a, on a gradient to prove himself and to succeed, 
Um, it turned around. That's that's wonderful, Joe. Yay! Thank you. <laughs> uh, it's neat to see, as you said, kids smile and know that behind that smile there's a sense of self-confidence. It's, it's almost as if you know that then the child is headed towards great things. And I think then the opposite is also true. You can look at a child. You and I have both worked with kids and parents long enough. You can look at a child without having even said a word and just know that there's a real uh, lack of self-confidence. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And that's that's um, such a sad thing when that light is not there at a, such an early age. Let's shift the focus a little bit to parents sure. because... Your book is A Parent's Guide to the Middle School Years, and I found it unique in that way. It, it is really a working guide for parents because we all know that parents who are involved in their kids' education, those kids do better. All the studies show that. And yet what I find in my work with parents that the parents seem to almost be overly involved to a point that they are overdoing, over-functioning, and as a result, their kids lack self-confidence, and they underfunction as students and often in some of the social realms as well. So my question to you is, what challenges do you think parents face today as their kids are entering the middle school years that may be unique to this day and age versus what our parents experienced? I'm I wasn't aware, like you said, I wasn't aware of my parents' challenges while I was in, in middle school. Because I do parent education, I'm very aware of the angst that a lot of parents feel about their children's need to succeed. So what would you say are, are parent challenges through these years? I think one of the ones that jumps out and inevitably comes to the forefront of, of any conversation when I talk with middle school parents today is technology. And it's a, it's a gap between a parent's knowledge and a child's knowledge that is so great in this generation that I really, as I look forward, I anticipate the gap becoming smaller. I think there's always going to be advances in technology, but I think this generation of parents is at a significant disadvantage because they grew up at a time where maybe they had a Commodore 64, you know? Everybody listening, you're laughing, you're thinking, oh, I had that computer. <laughs> You know, video games or maybe Atari. Yeah. Nothing like what kids have today where they can get online and, and they can have real-time discussion with somebody in Germany who they think is maybe 12 or 13, but really is 35. Uh, so there's a lot of, I think, the unknown, the anonymity of the Internet, uh, but it's simply not a medium that many parents are familiar with. And even those parents who work with technology on a day-to-day -day basis, Sitting down and using Microsoft Office in, in your workplace is dramatically different than sitting down and using Facebook or MySpace in, for social reasons. So I think that puts parents at a significant disadvantage. And for a lot of parents, the reaction is, uh, I don't know. It sounds dangerous. We have to cut this out and we have to limit my child's exposure to this. And I think parents run into real difficulties with that because kids are building relationships, maintaining relationships uh, online today. And I think uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're giving up relationships in the real world, you know, the offline world. I think it's just a, another avenue that kids are pursuing today. So with a little bit of education, I think we overcome that hurdle 
of, uh, of the lack of awareness that a lot of parents have, the lack of experience. And so it's something that I try and share some information with uh, when I speak with parents, just raising their awareness that there are some serious things to be aware of on the Internet, but there's a lot of really wonderful things that are happening. And just because your child spends time online, it doesn't mean that all of their real relationships offline are going to suddenly disappear. So I think that's one of the big challenges that seems to inevitably come to the discussion when I talk with parents about challenges. And as you mentioned, I think there's always going to be that gap in experience between a parent and a child. So much changes between the time that a parent leaves middle school and then when their child leaves middle school, you just lose touch with some of the emotions and some of the feelings and, and some of the things that happened during those years. And so it's hard to... I guess, perceive what those changes are from a middle schooler's perspective when it's been 20 plus years. I think part of the losing touch is a choice. <laughs> you want to selectively forget <laughs> some of the things because they were painful. And yes, you might gloss over them in your memory as an adult saying, well, it wasn't really that bad when the truth was it was awful. And when your kid's in the middle of it, you cannot reconnect with that so that you might have more empathy for them. I would agree. I would agree. Funny, in doing the research for the book, I put a blast out to my community and I said, I'd love to hear your stories from the middle school years, you know, the good, bad, and the ugly. And 90, fully 90% kind of fit the ugly category. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was. I and mean, you could tell from what the people had written that it was truly painful and so it was like wow you know this really took a lot for this person to share with me and went on at length and even people that i hadn't known very well seemed to really latch on to the prompt and wanting to talk about it even though it was painful uh just feeling like hey here's a great story that if it can help somebody else then i'm going to share it right I would think that those kinds of memories could help strengthen the connection between parents and kids during those years because I know that kids often feel very isolated when these things are happening to them. Cyberbullying, for example, is not something they are likely to share with their parents because they're ashamed of being targeted in that way. And it would be a, a really good opportunity for parents to say, even though the technology wasn't the same, the feelings, the feelings are the same. And yeah, I've been there and here's how I dealt with it. No, I would agree with you as well in, in that. Just having that conversation with your child, I think, is a major leap forward for parents and kids and being able to maintain that connection. I think you can say, uh, as a parent to your child, I was bullied, or this is my experience, and that's going to have an impact. But I think even greater than that is simply being there, being fully present, and saying, hey, I want to listen to what's happening with you and what your challenges are, and just to let you know I'm, I'm here and I'm listening. And I think beyond the whether or not my experience was exactly similar to what you're feeling right now, just knowing that your parent is there and they're behind you, is incredible for kids right now. So in your book, when you talk about the three C's of confidence, connection, and challenge, the connection part is what I'm hearing you say right now. And I think that's probably the basis of the coaching relationship that you're advocating at this time 
between parents and, and kids where they respect and trust each other. And the, the connection becomes solid at a point sometimes when psychologically we're growing apart from our parents as we move towards our peer group. I have a quote here from your book that I wanted to read and maybe have you comment on. Kids are trying on their new role as aspiring independent teens, which simply means they don't want help with anything that might make them look like a younger child dependent on mom or dad. I thought that was just brilliant and so, so right on. The idea that help for a child is often equated with not being grown up. And yet they do need help. And so you're, as a parent, kind of in this bind. They're pushing me away, and yet I know they need some kind of help. And so I wondered if you could help us as a listening audience determine the difference between the good kind of help and the not-so-helpful help. Right. It's a challenge that parents face on a daily basis because I remember when my kids, at the very youngest of ages, you know, they're infants, and you're literally doing everything for them. You're feeding them. You're changing them. Everything is done, but they're completely dependent upon you. And then they move into that realm where they're all of a sudden they're learning how to tie their shoes. And I can picture myself there vividly. And you practice it, practice it, practice it. And they're so close to being able to do it on their own and, and almost having to pull my hands back away from my son's shoes so that he would have the opportunity to do it on his own. And so that for me was a major transition point. Okay, I, wait, I want to stop you right there because what is the what is the impetus to do it for him when he's so close? I know it's so natural and you had the wherewithal and the self-control to pull your hands back. What is that impulse? Parents just really want to be so engaged with their child and helping that child become successful. Feel like they can do it on their own, which is ironic. If I get in there and do it for him, he doesn't have that opportunity to experience the success or the feeling like he did it on his own. It's almost as if, if I do it for him, there's that feeling like, well, then he'll see that he's successful himself, but really, that's not what's happening. And I think there's that break in a parent's mind. They don't completely understand that dynamic and how independence, being able to do something on your own leads to confidence. It's, I think it's that there isn't a real clear understanding about how confidence develops and that maybe that's part of what's playing into that. I would agree with that. And, and I think your, your coaching model is, is so right on in that way, because that really is the goal. When I talk to parents and they're Listing for me their objectives, their prime objectives for their children as they become young adults, confidence is up there. It's, it's always like one of the top three that they name, self-confident, being self-reliant, independent, all those things. And yet, we can see time and again, day after day, there are missed opportunities and parents who step in and jump in too soon to solve problems for kids, to fix something, and thus rob them of opportunities to do it on their own and, as you say, build the self-confidence, how it develops. So what tips can you give to parents right now? Like, give me three tips of how parents can fight the demon within them, <laughs> resist the opportunity, which is 
let's face it, all well-intentioned. Parents' hearts are always in the right place when they want to ease suffering or, or fix a problem. But how can they step back from that and not do it? <laughs> <laughs> a daily challenge, a daily challenge, I think, for parents. One of the questions that I will ask parents probably 90% of the time, so when I get up and do a parent education event, I will start with one question. The question is, how do you want your child to be 10 years, 15 years from now? And I see it's how, it's not what, but what, not what profession, doctor, lawyer, teacher, but how. And I really clearly define how as a feeling. How do you want them to be? And I define that time frame for them so that they begin to think beyond tomorrow, beyond next year, beyond what it's going to be like for them in high school. And then I end that with, can you imagine your child 10, 15 years from now still living in your own home? Yikes! <laughs> and that's usually enough of a stunner that it gets them into the mode of thinking, oh, I need to really think long-term about some of the choices and decisions I'm making today. And that seems to be one of the greatest challenges for parents, thinking beyond the day, which is ironic considering that their kids are, are having some of the same challenges and thinking beyond the day. But really trying to help parents think about how their choices today are impacting their child's life 10, 15 years from now. And that they can do things and start making choices today that really are going to impact them in a positive way. I think there's a lot of focus on if we don't make this decision for them now, if we don't get them into this honors class this year, you know, their choices are dashed for high school. They won't get into the top grade college. They won't have a great job. And that those types of choices are critical. Whereas I really see the other types of choices. And I talk a lot, of, again, about the three C's the confidence, connection, and challenge. And I've since defined a new three C's, which I love even more, which are choices, consequences, and consistency. Ooh. So those are my big tips to share with the audience today. The number one is choices. Giving your kids the opportunity to make choices. And I said, short of a choice that's going to put them in physical danger. No, you cannot go out in the middle of the street and run around when there's cars driving at 50 miles an hour. That's going to put you in physical danger, so that's not a choice that I will allow you to make as a child. But short of that, really, if you're going to make the choice not to do your homework tonight, fine by me, because there's a consequence that's going to be in place that, as a parent, I don't have to impose. There's going to be a consequence when that child shows up to school the following day. Now, if I take that choice away from my child and I'm hammering on them for hours and hours and hours, they haven't completed the homework because there's any real consequence. It's because I took the opportunity to make them do it. So they're not really getting a full sense of what that could mean for them if they choose not to. And the same goes for relationships. The same goes for expectations, maybe out on the soccer field or if they have some type of other extracurricular involvement where the parent steps in and doesn't allow the child to either take responsibility for meeting the expectations or take responsibility for some of the choices they make. So allowing your child the opportunity to make choices, short of ones that will put them in a space for physical harm, and then allowing them to really see what the consequences are 
And I think consequences sometimes get a bad rap as being something that's always negative. Right. But really, as we said earlier, having your child have the opportunity to make a choice and then see what the outcome is and then be able to take responsibility for the outcome. So if you think back to, again, my son tying his shoes, he ties his shoes for the first time without my help. And you see the smile, you see the confidence that grows from that. I can do it. Yeah, I can do it. You know, and then the other big tip I think is consistency is being able to, as I say with my daughter now, do what you say and say what you mean. And I've said it to her so many times now that she calls me on it. Daddy, you said what you said. Now you have to do what you said. Can you give me an example? So if I say to her, bedtime is 8 p.m., that is a consistent time frame that we're going to work with. It's not okay for me to continually change that bedtime on her. Because what that says to her is that, Whatever daddy says, it really doesn't mean much because he's always changing the rules for me. If I say to my child, you know what? Homework needs to be done on a consistent basis, right? It needs to be turned in the following day. And then I start to make exceptions for her because, oh, you had a late night or, oh, you know, something's coming up. You really don't need to do any of that. Now I'm inconsistent. If I've said to her, this is the consequence and I'm going to use it in a positive sense this way. If she comes home, she's had a great day at school, the progress report comes in, it's met all the expectations that we talked about. And I said, Dealer, you know what? If the progress report comes in and it's really looking sharp, just like what we talked about, then you're going to have the opportunity to choose how we'd like to celebrate that. If the progress report comes in later and I said, well, that's great, but you know, we really don't have time for that, And all of a sudden, I haven't really been consistent with following through on what I said I was going to do. And so as a child, you look at that and you say, well, mom or dad doesn't really mean what they say. And bigger than that, if they don't mean what they say, then why do I need to live up to any expectations? Why do I really need to be consistent with what I'm doing? And I think that's the bigger picture. It's that you, as a parent, whether you realize it or not, you are really modeling for your child some of the bigger things in life, being consistent, having integrity. Those are all the things that you're modeling for your child, whether you realize it or not. And sometimes it's the small things, like being consistent with what you say that really have a dramatic impact on kids. Yeah, I love what you just said. And I think parents do well to think about the choices they make in everything that they do because their kids are always watching and they're taking note and the rules should be consistent because kids need that. We all need that kind of consistency. And yeah, sometimes there's wiggle room because an emergency comes up and then renegotiate the agreement. But if wiggling becomes the norm, then everybody kind of feels like, well, what's the game we're playing here? What are the rules? And nobody feels really comfortable in that kind of environment. So, yeah, kudos to you. I think that that I love your new three things. Say them again for us. Choices, consequences, and consistency. So those are key words for raising kids from day one, I think. I think so. I think so. And I think when, when you haven't really thought about those three, the second three C's, the choices, consequences, consistency, when you haven't thought about that when your kids are young, 
it becomes even more and more of a challenge as your kids grow older because they've developed a routine and they've kind of come to assume that the rules are a certain way and now all of a sudden you try and become more consistent with your child or you hold them accountable to the choices when you haven't in the past and as you said annie now you're changing the rules and kids don't like when the rules get changed especially when it's a dramatic shift so i would be i'm in complete agreement with you in that i think from the earliest of ages if parents were to really think about those second three c's and start to put them into place where it's realistic and where it's appropriate that you're headed into a great experience during the middle school years when those things really seem to come to the forefront so your book is really helping parents go through sixth seventh and eighth grade again (laughs) in a way (laughs) they're the coach they're the guide, and I think in some ways they might have an opportunity through their experience of their child's success, maybe dislodge some of the uncomfortable memories they had from their own past. What do you think about that? I, I would agree, and I think that people come into that experience of the middle school years. We've talked about how painful it's been for a lot of people. You come in with a, a set of luggage, you know, and some people like eight or nine piece set of luggage that you're pulling along with you. They're like, oh, this is terrible. I had a horrible experience. My child is going to have exactly the same experience as I did. And so you come in with these preconceived ideas about what it's going to be. And I think one of the things that I tried to do with the book is to say, yes, there are some challenges and acknowledge the fact that it is tough and it has been tough for a lot of people, but there are some incredible moments that you can share with your child. The first time they really get excited about that new thing that they're doing after school or being a volunteer or now they're mentoring a younger child. I mean, those are some amazing events. The first relationship that they have, boy, with a girl, that it's that new and exciting time for them that you can really share with them and get excited with them about uh, so that it doesn't have to be that full nine-piece set of luggage that you toted with you. It can be different. Okay. Um, As we're wrapping up, I want to touch on the importance of the family connection through all of this. As we were talking about so much changing going on within the child, within his or her social sphere, the academic expectations, the, the changing classes, and all the different demands of having six or seven different teachers, and what's that like? I'm also hearing so much these days about kids who are dealing with overpacked after-school schedules and the impact that has on family life, that continuity and that touching base again at the end of a, a day just filled to the gills with all kinds of experiences and expectations and demands. And parents seem to be saying that there is no time for family time. And that balance that we all need, that regrouping time seems to be a smaller and smaller window. And I know parents care a lot about staying connected, and yet it seems that the school and the schedule often works against them. And I wonder if you have any tips for parents about reclaiming some of that time. Sure. Number one, uh, driving to and from practice for hours after the school day ends, that's not quality time with your child. And I think we have to be very clear about that up front. 
that idea that if you are in the same car with your child and they're in the back seat and you're focused on driving or, or you're having a cell phone call, just that physical presence, that's not quality time. And I think there's a mis misconception or maybe misperception that uh, if we're in the same space together, that that, that counts as they're probably texting in the back seat yeah. anyway. So <laughs> yeah, you know, and then to go on on that, sending text messages to and from your child—that's that, not quality communication either. And I'll take it a step further, and I will say that you know, if that's the only communication you're having, great, it's better than nothing. But please don't assume that that can take the place of being able to sit down and share time together. And I do understand that families are busy today. You've got a lot of families now, both mom and dad are working. They're working late into the 80, 100 hour work weeks and the kids have the jam packed schedules. So, you know, for the families that I do work with that have the really busy schedules, say, you know what? You carve out a time during the week and I love Sundays or Mondays if possible because that's kind of before the, the full week gets rolling and you get so far into it that then you're too far into it to take time out. But if you take Sunday or Monday and you carve out a 20 to 30 minute spot and you might be out on the road, you might be going to a soccer tournament, so you might have to do that in a restaurant somewhere, but you carve out that time and you really sit down, you pull out the calendar. And by the calendar, I really love the full-on desktop, shows an entire month at a glance calendar. And everybody there in the family, you have an opportunity to plot out the events that are coming up in the coming weeks. And that can be very telling for families. Sometimes when you sit down and you look at a calendar as a family, and I've had families do this before, they're shocked by how busy they have become. You've got soccer practice, you've got swimming, there's ballet lessons. It, it's like they they realize that all of a sudden there really is no time. And that's when it's a realization and they start to cut back. So as much as I'm an advocate of getting out there and enjoying all that there is to do in the after school hours, I think at some point you have to say, what are our priorities? And do we really value that time that we're spending together as a family? And I think when families, when you sit down and you confront them with that question, do you, how much do you really value the time you spend together? I don't have any families that say, well, we, we, we don't value any time. Of course they value time they spend together. It's just a question of where are you going to find that time within your week. So having the calendar out there, giving kids and parents an opportunity to plot out what's happening during the week, and then really starting to scale back and you say, what is it that we really need to do? You start there. What do we need to do? And now, what is it that we want to do? Great. All of a sudden, we've got time that we can now spend together, whether that's dinner, it's a breakfast, it's a weekend. You start to put some of those things together on the calendar that then bring the family together. But sometimes it really takes that very visual, I've got to see exactly how busy I am to know that, wow, we're really losing touch as a family. I like that one of the choices is to cut back. <laughs> that we can actually do that as a family. We can make a choice to eliminate some of the things that we don't need to do in favor of some of the things that we really want to do. And I think the challenge there is that you can be with a group of people, and I see this in the middle school years in particular, as a parent, you start to talk with other parents about, you know, what is your child doing? What is your child doing? And then project forward, you know, 
into the high school years, the college years. Well, if they're not involved with this club sport in the after-school hours, they're not practicing baseball five days a week, they're not going to get that college scholarship. And if they're not doing that volunteer activity, and all of a sudden there's a, like a frenzy of activity and this belief that if your child is not busy every minute of every day, that it's going to lead to something horrible years from now. And I think it's that built-up frenzy of anxiety that gets parents going, and then, of course, it gets kids overscheduled. So I think it's bringing it back and really talking about uh, what's realistic for you, what's realistic for your child, and really putting that into perspective as to you know, what is the impact of having your child involved in you know, that sport or that activity now? What does it really mean for them in the future? And I think that's part of what you and I try to do on an ongoing basis with parent education. And I think that's one of the things that I'm hoping is going to come through in the book is that, you know, it's healthy to have your child involved in something after school, but really in the long term, you want to think more about just that level of activity and try and bring some balance to that and just giving them the opportunity to hang out. That's okay. It's okay that your child just hangs out for a little while. Yeah, they don't have enough time. You should schedule hanging out time. That's right. <laughs> I definitely agree. Okay, I think we're going to wrap up here. The book is A Parent's Guide to the Middle School Years. The author, Joe Brusesi. Joe, tell us where we can find out more about the work you do in coaching in case people want to get in touch with you. And also your wonderful website, which has so many resources for parents. Right. You can find out more about me, about the work I'm doing. And the website that you would go to for that is thinkingforwardtv.com. Thinkingforwardtv.com. It has a list there of the various resources that I offer, the coaching that I do, the different presentations that I give. And then I, uh, I produce and post a video every day, Monday through Friday. It's a commitment that I've made to, uh, to my community and to really anyone who would like to tune in. It's just a three to five minute, what I call a daily boost of parenting wisdom. So I talk about different challenges, different questions. Sometimes those are questions that have come from people that are watching the show that really parents are struggling with in some cases. And it helps to boost what I feel like the wisdom that they, that they are going into the middle school years with on a daily basis. So that's on the website. Uh, you'll be able to find the book. Actually, you can order it now online through Amazon. But it's going to be now in major booksellers, Borders, Barnes & Noble, beginning in June. Well, thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate your time. And as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. Annie, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been a real honor. Keep up the good work. <laughs> thank you. This is Annie Fox for Family Confidential. For more information about my work with tweens, teens, and parents, visit AnnieFox.com. And tune in next time when my guest Jamie Wolf will discuss her new book, Mom in Chief. Till then, happy parenting. Mm-hmm.